Hello and welcome back to Who Knew We Didn't. My name is Marta and my partner in podcast here is... Megan! Uh, today we are back at you with yet another relationship episode. Uh, as we've mentioned already many times, this became a lot larger than we thought it would be. Yes. And even as we were doing research for this episode, we found research for another one and for another one. So today uh, Megan is going to be doing the psychology of relationships for love and lust so when does like sexy boom boom stay just sexy boom boom (laughs) (laughs) i can't believe i said that (laughs) i'm so glad you said that (laughs) and when does it turn into like what is the point where it stays kind of like casual relationship type kind of thing and then next week i'm going to be going into what makes it love and theories of romantic love uh and then the week after that we're probably going to have yet another relationships episode it seems like it's never going to stop honestly Um, this is like (laughs) relationships is like a whole section of psychology i'm sure yeah Yeah. and before we dive in completely i just wanted to say thank you to all of the people that we've interacted with over the last couple weeks i have built up quite a strong community on Reddit of listeners of our podcast. And I messaged a couple people on Facebook as well. And I had um, an organization reach out to me through Twitter, like about our mental health episode. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So it was just very cool to see all of this happening. Like, as you guys know that we just started this podcast because we're both really interested in this top like in these topics but the fact that there's other people um the casual psychologists with us listening with us that think that we have responding and reacting and yeah yeah yeah, it's just really cool that we have people joining us on our journey yeah word i just want to say thanks hashtag potter and family (laughs) yeah yeah you guys have been awesome Um, true also hashtag wkwd right yeah that's our hashtag yeah do it (laughs) hashtag it anyway yeah so today's episode megan's going to be teaching me um and megan take it away oh thank you marta thank you very much uh okay so as marta described i'm going to be talking about the psychology of the uh less side to romantic relationships so uh like love and sex uh so we just sort of generally we talked about this in our theories of personality episode a bit that all humans have fundamental needs so what those exact needs are they vary depending on who you're listening to like freud and young and that sort of thing they're all very similar but they are um distinct enough that that they're separate theories but anyway um they're there and they're fundamental and uh, they are not physical. So that was something that I thought was interesting. And sex isn't a physical need, although it is often huh. uh, portrayed as a physical need. It's a physical act that brings you closer to fulfilling psychological needs. Okay. Yeah. So you're not like, you're not going to die if you don't have sex. Although ironically, some guys would have you believe that. Well, or like you could contract a, uh, an STI that that could have fatal consequences. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, but, so you uh, might die from having sex. Yeah, you can die from having sex, but you won't die from not having it. Like you will, you will keep breathing. You will keep living. It's not like something that will will kill you if you if you don't do it. Um, so Deception? I thought that was an interesting thing. I. I encountered in my research and I thought it was worth mentioning from the top. This actually brings in an interesting thing that I found in my research is that you might die from not having a person to love. Well, not my, you're not going to die from it, but it shortens your life expectancy. Yeah. Yeah. So. 
but it's not the cause of your death. Anyway, so like I say, we have these fundamental needs. The exact list of needs depend on who you're listening to, but they can be generally grouped together as security, self-esteem, autonomy, and connection. So sexual intimacy and orgasms will increase levels of oxytocin, which helps people bond and build trust. And sexual activity is... It, like it has good health benefits, like it reduces your stress, it decreases your risk of prostate cancer. And, you know, apparently I found one thing random that it says it gives you an improved sense of smell. Um, Wait, what? Really? Yeah, apparently. And that's like scientifically backed. Uh, yeah, but I only found it in one place. I thought it was interesting enough to mention it, but it's not. And like what so- kind of smells? I don't know. Sorry, I'm digging into the one thing that you told me you didn't dig into. Yeah, no, but- I didn't dig into it at all, but. Anyway, uh, yeah, there was a, I, I found it and it said citation needed next to it. And so I was like, ah, oh, so it's legit you, enough yeah. to include it, but it's not legit enough to give a citation for gotcha, it. So gotcha. anyway, um, yeah, bit of a bummer. But anyway, uh, take so, your time. I'm Googling sex improving <laughs> sense of smell. <laughs> yeah, find it. It would be really neat, eh? If, if we, uh, if that was real, because then we could become like bionic humans just from having sex. Anyway. Uh, we consciously and unconsciously seek to attract others to form relationships. It could be for companionship. It could be for procreation or for an intimate relationship. Um, we flirt, like we use body language, conversation, uh, sometimes some physical contact. And that's like a socially acceptable way to attract someone that you like. Uh, lots of ways to flirt, but each person has their sort of way that they are most comfortable with. And this will vary across cultures. So I thought this was kind of interesting. And I don't know if it's psychology per se, but it's interesting. And so I want to tell you about it. Well, you said it varies across cultures. Yeah, it varies across cultures. Social psychology, I would say. Yeah, I guess we'll see. Okay. So apparently flirting in Germany is very different from flirting in North America. I found an article on Spiegel online. That's the name of the publication (laughs) (laughs) talking about how different, um, how different flirting with German people is from North American flirting techniques. Um, They said that interest is indicated by a way of, and this is a direct quote, a studied, concentrated look on the part of the man, a gaze which may, but often doesn't, include a smile. Um, Wait, so the woman just stares at the man? No, the man just stares at the woman. Oh, okay. I thought you meant like a studied, concentrated gaze on the part of a man, like on his part. No, no, no. On the the man's part, he's he's doing the staring. So he just stares at her. Sometimes he smiles, but often... He would not smile. Oh, my God. And um, rather than a stare, not a total stare, it should be, like, brief and fleeting. And then his job is done. And Wait, that's it? Yeah, that's all he has to do to indicate his, like, interest. Isn't that, like, kind of part of regular flirting? Like, not regular, but, like, Western flirting? Like I don't know. Eye contact? Like, making a contact from across the bar? Yeah, but that's... Um, not unique to a specific gender like that's women true. do that oh, as well that's true that's true that's true and like when a guy in north america is expressing interest in you he doesn't just stare at you in a specific way <laughs> he like comes over to you and drops a weird pickup line or you know something like that being a woman in germany is like avoid all eye contact <laughs> like <laughs> well kind of yeah that's what this article went into it's so like um in, in Germany, like if it's two Germans together, then the power really rests solidly with the female. Um, 
So an American man trying to flirt with a German woman in Germany because um, in Germany, it did talk about how a German woman might loosen up a little bit on vacation. But if she's in Germany and an American man goes over to Germany and is like trying to flirt with her in a North American way, he'd be coming on way too strong for her. He would be seen as like aggressive and too much because of our flirting styles. Um, But it also found that German men often think that a woman is flirting, flirting with him when she isn't, or um, they often don't know how to react when a woman is flirting with them. But worse off is that it can be really difficult for a woman to, to know when a German man is flirting with her because he's just looking at you and like, <laughs> what are you supposed to do with that? You're like shopping and the guy's like, oh, that'll be twenty five fifty, And she's like, excuse me, no, I will not go on a date with yeah. you. Like, I'm just trying to get you to pay I for your shit. I think this is just in a bar setting, but yeah, yeah. yeah. It, or like, uh, anyway, apparently this is like a very nuanced, understood thing between men and women in Germany and it's something Crazy. that's like totally not... I've never noticed that um, engaged in by people outside of Germany. I have, I have family in Germany and like I visited them quite often, but they're Polish Germans. I don't know if that makes a difference, but like, I don't know. Like you should ask them about this. Yeah. I've gone out drinking with my cousin before and I've never noticed that, but also I never thought that anyone was flirting with me, but maybe they were. Maybe they were. Maybe they were just looking at me. Is your cousin male or female? Female. Female. Hmm. And she wasn't giving you any like, yo, this no. <laughs> guy over here, this no. Franz is uh, Franz. into you. Franz is into you. Uh, <laughs> That's a German no. name, right? But people did also just use me as like their opportunity to practice their English, which I was happy to oblige. Oh, cool. Yeah. Also, uh, just as a side note, I found the study about sex improving your sense of smell. Legit? Um, and there was a study in mice specifically. So I don't know if there was one in humans afterwards. But well, the, one the found, thing that I found was talking about humans. So maybe uh, that's why it said citation needed is that like a link has been found but not been tested on mice. But anyway. Or maybe. Humans. humans. <laughs> Jinx. Jinx. <laughs> <laughs> you go. Finish your story. Uh, that was creepy. <laughs> um, uh, yeah. So the... The study showed that after orgasm, there is a surge of nerve cells in the oh, orgasm can double the amount of nerve cells in a mouse's olfactory bulb, which is a part of the brain that handles smell. Um, prolactin is also abundant in female mice specifically. So that's, I guess, the thing that has to do with smell um, after conception. So after they've like gotten pregnant and after delivery presumably heightening their sense of smell hey that happens in women like human women too right i don't know if it's prolactin um but isn't that a thing about pregnancy that like your sense of smell is compromised and like heightened or yeah. something like that yeah i guess so i i mean you're yes i think so yeah that's um, like that that old um age old image of a woman like you know grocery shopping and smelling something in the meat department and getting sick or like going to a restaurant and ordering a meal and then not being able to eat it because she gets it or all she wants is pickles because that's true um okay i should have just read to the end of this before starting to cite it because it said that research has shown that sex boosts prolactin levels in humans too Oh, word. Cool. Um, <laughs> and there's another thing about the um, conception and delivery scent, scent connection, uh, increased sensitivity. So S C N T. Oh, jokes. Um, probably helps mice recognize their 
their mates and pups, forging bonds among the family unit. So, like, the smell of your own family yeah. you're, like, bonded to, which yeah. is cool. Cool. And that, I pulled it from the Telegraph, reporting on research performed by Weiss. W-E-I-S-S? Yeah, Sam Weiss from the University of Calgary. Oh, cool. Go Canada. Um, Anyway, that's really neat. I'm glad that, thank you for for looking that up and finding that, Marta, um, because that's cool. Uh, In any case, uh, back to my notes here. Uh, So so one's ability to attract the sexual interest of another person, it can be due to many different qualities, like it could be physical or other traits of a person, um, or also the qualities within the context in which they appear. So like a man in uniform is a lot sexier than that same, same man when he's not in his uniform, although if he's naked, maybe <laughs> sweatpants. Suit. We'll no, go. Yeah, birthday yeah. Suit. Birthday suit is aside. Um, yeah, a man in uniform is a lot more sexually uh, appealing than he is when he's in sweatpants or something like that. Why is that? Uh, because of the context in which he appears. But like, I don't find emergencies particularly sexy. No, but if you're in a grocery store and you see a hot paramedic in his hot paramedic That's outfit, are you not like, hey, off-duty paramedic, what, about what are you doing? Pardon? What about janitors? Um, well, I think that would all depend on the, on the uniform. Because like, for example, I used to work at McDonald's and that was, it was not a flattering uniform in Girl, the year 2004. I worked at Tim's, same thing. <laughs> it was not a flattering uniform. But now you see the McDonald's uniforms that they get to wear now, they're slick. Oh yeah, they're cooler. They're like really cool and like but. kind of athletic looking and the managers look like very spiff. Yeah, and, that's true. Yeah. That's true. So, I mean, if they took off the McDonald's name tag and were just walking down the street in their cool mcdonald's uniform i might be like hey nice pants nice butt i don't know (laughs) um the whole attraction thing it includes things like uh physical or psychological similarity or familiarity possessing a lot of like common or familiar features with the other person um reciprocal liking and reinforcement of these feelings of attraction um a person's sexual attractiveness is also largely subjective and it depends on the other person's interest perception and sexual orientation so for example uh, a gay or lesbian person would typically find a person of the same sex to be more attractive than somebody of the other sex no shit Uh, a bisexual person would find either sex to be attractive and in addition there are asexual people who usually do not experience sexual attraction for either sex though they may have romantic attraction yeah Anywho, I want to move in to talking a little bit about sexuality and gender differences and if these differences are are real or imagined amongst societies. I have a question before oh. you dive in. Um, when we were talking about scent and sex, mm-hmm. do you talk about pheromones at all? Do I? Yeah. I'm not going to get into pheromones, no. Okay. Do you want we to We should talk? definitely cover that in that third episode. Yeah? Yeah. Okay. It'll be our catch-all? Yeah, like ke- the chemicals of love. Ooh, that's a good title. Yeah. <laughs> hey, guys, by the way, the episode after next week's episode is going to be the chemicals, chemicals of love. Of love. Yeah. 
Cool. Um, so many different approaches to the study of human sexuality and gender differences um, exist. And pretty much all of this, by the way, is taken from a combination of Wikipedia and a 2001 meta-analysis that I found, which I know Marta's going to love because it's a meta-analysis. <laughs> okay, can I tell you my notes for the next episode? I found two meta-analyses and I was like, these are my favorite. And like I wrote it in the notes. So girl, I, I wrote it in the notes that you you're going me. to love this. Yeah. Um, it's so anyway, the meta-analysis uh, for the record, it's by Mary Beth Oliver and Janet S. Hyde called Gender Differences in Sexuality. Again, super boring, so super academic. Um, there's the neo-analytic theory, and that's based on the observation that mothers bear the major responsibility for childcare in most families and cultures. And as a result, both male and female infants form an intense emotional attachment to their mother because she's a woman or not because she's a woman, but she happens to be a woman because she um, like holds that role because she's society. their primary caregiver. Yeah. yeah duh. Um, <laughs> anyway, according to feminist psychoanalytic theorist, Nancy Ch- Chodoro, I believe you Ch- Chodoro. Yeah. Um, girls tend to preserve this attachment throughout life. And this becomes part of how they define their identities where boys would need to reject the maternal attachment in order to develop a masculine identity. And this theory predicts that women's economic dependence on men in a male dominated society will tend to cause women to approve of sex more in committed relationships um, because of like the economic security and less so in casual relationships. So this supports the idea of like forming committed relationships for sexual activity and also explains why we form committed relationships for sexual activity. I wonder about how they prove that. Well, there I'm going to list off a few different theories. So let's okay. maybe talk about circle back to that in the end yes um but basically like there the idea is that like we form these committed relationships for sexual um activity because women's security and economic dependence is like why they are more favorable to sex in a committed relationship and also perhaps why men end up forming committed relationships as well so that they can have sex this actually reminds me of the um book or podcast that i mentioned to you where uh, uh, oh my god my brain is not working uh the simplify podcast with Mm -hmm. eli finkel and that book about marriage or like his book about Mm -hmm. marriage and how like before marriage was very much strictly for economic security and so that kind of ties in pretty closely with the theory that females are more accepting of sex and in a committed relationship in a committed secure relationship where they know that they can handle the byproducts of said sex which is bebes so <laughs> yes true see um i'm very eloquent today we're gonna have a good episode oh yeah yeah <laughs> uh i am yes i'm excited um so then another theory is the social learning theory and this theory um posts that sexuality is influenced by people's social environment so sexual attitudes and behaviors are learned through observation of role models such as parents or media figures um, and also through positive or negative reinforcements of behaviors that match or defy established gender roles i love the social learning theory i think that nobody exists in a vacuum so it's always relevant social learning i yeah i think there's one or two more that i'm gonna mention um as part of this or maybe that's it um but yeah, I, I agree with this. I, I identified more so than this one. The the neo-analytic theory seemed a little outdated to me. But anyway, social learning theory. Um, 
This theory predicts that gender differences in sexuality can change over time as a function of changing social norms, which I appreciate. Um, it also predicts or supports that um, society's double standard in punishing women for engaging in promiscuous activity more than men who are often rewarded um, for engaging in promiscuous activity leads to significant gender differences in attitudes and behaviors regarding sexuality. Insert sister preach emoji here. <laughs> Yeah, no doubt. Um, it also, this theory also ropes in um, the social role theory, which basically means that sexual attitudes and behaviors are shaped by the roles that men and women are expected to fill in society. Um, and it also brings in script theory, which for, uh, focuses on the symbolic meaning of behavior. So, like, it suggests that social conventions influence the meaning of specific acts. For example, um, male sexuality is tied more to individual pleasure and macho stereotypes, and that predicts a high number of casual sexual encounters for men. But female sexuality is tied more to the quality of a committed relationship. And basically, it's like, we think this is how men and women are, and therefore, this is how men and women are. Self-fulfilling yeah. prophecy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so essentially, this says that the double standard where women face more scrutiny and punishment than men do for promiscuous behavior is why women tend to engage in sex more so in committed relationships. So it's not for financial security or anything like that. It's simply because like they're going to face scrutiny if they... The expectation that that's the way it should be. Yeah, yeah. And the... Um, the worry of, of scrutiny if you were to act out of that. Yeah. Um, and also because, yeah, we think men are more casual with sex and we think women need to be in a relationship and therefore that's how it is. Um, like it's the, this is our reality because it's the script that we've written for ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that's what I have for like theories of, of gender differences in sexuality, which I thought was really neat and I wanted to include. And personally, I think we can already tell that both of us really identify more with the social learning theory than the neo-analytic i just feel like the neo-analytic is very um donna reed 50s housewife sort of um well would you agree that they're kind of related though like oh they're yeah they are related like the idea that that's how it's supposed to be for women and so that's how it is for women yeah, yeah. like one could lead to the other could lead to the other like it's in my eyes they're all kind of the same just different ways of saying it or like at different levels of analyzing it yeah like somebody saying it's kind of like a chicken or the egg kind of thing like which came first like our beliefs that this should be done this way and so that's why we do it or like we learn these beliefs from somebody else and so we have these yeah. beliefs and so that's why we do it like i don't know maybe they do work together i don't know that's kind of that's part of the, the reason that like my undergrad in psychology frustrated me because on multiple choice exams, you'd give, you'd be given all of these theories and they're all essentially the same. And or, you're asked to choose the most correct or something like that. Yeah, it's or like, like which theory believed this and which theory believed this. And I'm like, well, they use different words, but a lot of them believe the same things. So like mm -hmm. there are, there are many discrete differences that I know I'm glossing over here, but as a casual psychologist over here, <laughs> I think that a lot of these things are similar slash same. Yeah. But social learning for the win. <laughs> yeah, word. To, yeah. Um, so now I want to move on to a new topic of evolution and sexuality, which I think that you're going to enjoy because we're going to get a little Ev psyche up in here. Yeah, boy. Um, <laughs> um, so first, uh, so, so sociobiological. Um, 
this applies evolutionary biology to human sexuality. So again, yeah, you're going to love this because it's F-Psych. It emphasizes reproductive success in shaping patterns of sexual behavior. So, uh, uh, okay, Marta is nodding. She's just leaning forward and nodding. Yep. Um, (laughs) I'm just nodding into the mic because of course you guys can hear that. Can hear all of that. Yeah. I thought you were going to say something because you leaned into the mic there. No, I was like, I need to stop interrupting just saying like, yes, but but also yes. (laughs) Yeah, word. Um, Okay. So according to sociobiologists, since uh, women's parental investment in reproduction is greater than men's. Um, So what I mean by that is sperm is more plentiful than eggs and women must devote a lot more energy to like creating their offspring than Amanda's. does. Um, Women tend to be more selective in their choice of mates than men are. And perhaps this is why our society tends to see men as being more sexually casual and promiscuous than women. Like basically they have more seeds to sow. Um, women are more selective about a mate for evolutionary reasons. And this is why they are more favorable of sex in a committed relationship. But then I watched a Ted talk. And so obviously it blew my mind and changed my world. Um, (laughs) And like just kind of completely changed my ideas about how Ev Psych applies to human sexuality. So the Ted talk is by a man called Christopher Ryan. And the title is, are we designed to be sexual omnivores? And it was really cool. Go watch it. We'll put the link in the description of this episode for anyone who's interested. Um, Basically what, what he, his theory is, is that before agriculture, humans lived in hunter-gatherer groups characterized by fierce egalitarianism so we're all equal we don't just share it's demanded like sharing is an obligation it's part of being in this group um so our society's current idea that women gain food and shelter and that sort of stuff in exchange for sexual relationships like the neo-analytic theory uh, that we talked about earlier it goes against our core hunter-gatherer lizard brain approach which is that food shelter etc are shared widely among the group and this sharing is the best way to mitigate risk when you're living in this group so Christopher Ryan and his co-author Casilda couldn't find a first name. Um, <laughs> uh, they wrote a book called, I think it's called Sex at Dawn. Um, anyway, they extended this sharing behavior idea to the concept of human sexuality um, and that human sexuality evolved up until agriculture as a way of establishing and maintaining complex social networks within our hunter-gatherer groups. And this is why our species has survived. Like basically our ancestors probably had several different overlapping sexual relationships within their group. Um, and this was really like prosperous for them. Um Sidebar, those of us who choose monogamy aren't doing anything wrong by doing that. It's not like the worst thing to go against this idea. Um, and, and he just had a really great way of putting it. So I want to quote him. Um, he says that the idea that our ancestors were sexually omnivorous isn't a criticism of monogamy. It's just like saying that, you know, our ancestors were dietary omnivores isn't a criticism of vegetarianism. Um, like just because you've made the choice not to eat meat doesn't mean that bacon stops smelling good or something like that. So just because you've made the choice to be in a monogamous relationship doesn't mean that you aren't still sexually attracted to other people from time to time. And I just thought that was a neat way of putting it. So I actually have like a lot, a lot to add. Is that okay? Yes, add, (laughs) add, add. So in, I remember it was my, uh, I was in an anthropology class in like my undergrad and we had a guest speaker come in and it was kind of the same thing that humans are not meant to be monogamous 
um, and that like sure uh, passionate love exists between two people for the first year or so and that's like a committed relationship but it doesn't have to be sex as part of a committed relationship yeah Yeah. and then after like three years your eye starts to wander and you stop being so sexually attracted to your existing partner Um, well not stop but like they they notice like a steep drop off Hmm. kind of around the three three year mark so there's a one year mark and the three year mark uh, and being sexually attracted to somebody outside of your emotionally committed relationship is completely okay. Uh, but the way that this speaker presented it kind of just shattered my world because he's like, monogamy is not natural. Like he took a really like aggressive stance about it, but it really just goes hand in hand with what you're saying that like sexual omnivores are that's like our ancestors. That's our ancestry. Yeah. Yeah. Um, another thing about the. Uh, selection of partners that you mentioned earlier. Do you have more EvPsych research that you're going to go uh, into? I have a little bit, but it's okay. going to get into like bonobos and things. So, okay, <laughs> you, so, I'm sure it won't overlap. So, female selection of partners. There's, I don't know if I've mentioned this on the podcast already, but uh, it has to do with pheromones. I'm breaking the rules. I'm going to talk about do it chemicals in sex. Uh, so, they there there are studies of women at different cycles in their um, like menstrual cycle. Yeah, yeah. A different. Sorry, different times in their menstrual cycle so like when they're ovulating versus when they're not ovulating so high risk of pregnancy low risk of pregnancy and they had a selection of men wear like a t-shirt for two days or whatever and then they put these t-shirts in ziploc bags and each man had different levels of testosterone Uh, and the testosterone was displayed differently too in their physicality so like uh, if men have high testosterone it exhibits itself with like a stronger jawline a more traditional triangular body shape so wider shoulders narrow hips um, that sort of thing and high testosterone indicates a good mate mm-hmm. because uh, if somebody exhibits high testosterone, that means that their immune system is likely very strong. Also, there's another factor other than testosterone. It's um, like their Im- immune system diversity. Like they're kind of like bacterial flora in their body. I don't know if I'm de- using the right words to describe this, but like that also comes through in scent. And so women cho- tended to choose partners who exhibited higher testosterone and who are a, a slightly more diverse match, like uh, immune wise, when they tend to prefer the smells of those t-shirts when they were ovulating, when they were higher risk of pregnancy. Wow. Yeah. Um, when they are not ovulating, they prefer lower testosterone men because they take fewer risks. They're more likely to stay with you and be committed uh, and actually raise the children versus higher testosterone men are more likely to, or at least like in the lizard brain, higher testosterone men are more likely to compete for other women as well, uh, are more likely to be alpha male, so have a higher selection of female partners, that sort of thing. But women always tend to prefer somebody who has a different immune system makeup than their own because then your baby gets a wider array of immune immunities to disease so you don't tend to like people with the exact same makeup which is why women don't tend to be attracted to their own siblings uh or like even cousins because you have very like similar overlapping genes but somebody who's completely different you also don't tend to like and i can't remember why but where there's like it's a sweet spot. Yeah, there's a sweet spot. Like, I'm thinking about Venn diagrams, and I'm doing, like, little circle things yeah, with my hands you're here. you're acting but, it out. Yeah. But, yeah, so there was, like, a smell study with T-shirt smells, and that is how women, like, how pheromones and testosterone and all of that 
played into the t-shirt smell thing. So women actually preferred the smell of t-shirts with higher testosterone. When they Um, were ovulating? mm -hmm. And then women find different men attractive uh, based on different times in their cycles. So when they're ovulating, higher um, testosterone. Like who physically present higher testosterone features? Yeah, so like a prominent brow as well is one of the high testosterone features and strong jawline, as I mentioned. Yeah, and then when they're not ovulating, they prefer slightly more effeminate men who are lower in testosterone because they're more likely to stay. It's making me like question attraction I've had to people in the past. You know what I mean? Where like somebody who I might not normally find attractive, I'm like, hey, you're looking really good today. Is that because he's actually looking really good today or is it because I'm ovulating? You want to know what else fucks with this? The pill. Women who are on the pill tend to have the preferences of women who have low contraceptive risk. Like uh, like, tend to have the same preferences as women do when they have low contraceptive or low yeah low pregnancy risk so even when they're ovulating when you're on your when you're on the pill you don't ovulate oh herb derp yeah so that's that's something that like completely blew my mind um yeah when women on the pill have different preferences from women who are not on the pill that's wild yeah anyway those are just my psych chemical chemistry of like i'm so glad you added it (laughs) it like feeds into this conversation very well thank you marta citation needed because these are all things i learned in school and didn't look up for this episode well is a citation needed can we just cite university of guelph yeah sure word education of guelph yeah university citation the diploma that should be hanging right here on my wall yeah if only you could actually point to something other than a blank wall there did you on my to-do list i have frames for diplomas because i have like three that i want to hang that's cute but so it's coming anyway complete sidebar nation no that's fine taylor did the very same thing got very excited about those diplomas um anyway another interesting fact that i learned in this ted talk humans are one of the very few species on earth where the female is available for sex throughout her menstrual cycle, which I it never occurred to me, but oh, yeah. isn't that wild? Yeah, whether she's menstruating or um, or not, she's available for sex, technically. That's cool. There's yeah. actually this... Or like if she's menopausal or if she's pregnant, like at any time in her life, at any time in her cycle, she's still available, available for sex. This brings up a lot of... In- a lot of stuff that I learned in EvPsych, and I'm like, I don't know if I should talk about it now or if we should do it a whole other episode. But there's theories on like how the penis is shaped versus how big the ovum is, like how big the egg is. And like, I think it's the bigger the ovum, the more dominant the female is in the societal structure. Whoa. Yeah. So, like, or the more investment there is. I don't know, but there's something to do with like the size of the ovum. We might have to cut this because I'm, it's just fragments that I'm remembering. Uh, it's and making me think of the queen bee that she's like humongous. Yeah. Um, there's also this, like the shape of the penis is argued that like some animals, like it's created kind of like a bell on the top. And the argument is that it's to scoop other um, like competitors oh, I've heard that theory. sperm out yeah. or whatever. So there's just like a lot of ev psych theories about sex and competition theory and stuff like that. Damn. That would be interesting to explore. Yeah. Um, another day. Another day. I do have some other interesting facts that I want to share with you. The average human has sex about 1,000 times per birth. 
isn't I wouldn't have thought that oh that's cool yeah oh um, there's this brings up a meme and it's like oh the average person has sex like however many hundred times a year and somebody like found this study in December they're like wow I'm gonna have a wild December <laughs> <laughs> that's great um yeah so 1,000 times per birth and we share this ratio with chimps and bonobos but not gorillas orangutans or gibbons um they would only have sex around a dozen times per birth so so humans risk bonobos and chimps is one in a thousand even if you're not using birth control is that no, what that means no that like we have sex 1,000 times for every one birth. for every one birth yeah um i does it mean the same thing the way you sound, said it, it sounded a little different to me. It's kind of like you can have sex a thousand times before one birth. But that can't be true. But is that high? Oh. It's just an average, Marta. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> sorry. <laughs> I don't know. This is the problem I'm thinking with of like, generalizing statistics, Marta. You've argued about this yourself. So I'm talking yeah. to myself. Note to self on a podcast. Sorry. No, it's okay. Um, humans and bonobos are the only animals that have sex face-to-face. Whoa. Yeah. Humans, chimps, and bonobos all have external testicles for an evolutionary reason, which I didn't know at all. It keeps the sperm cells cool so that you can have frequent ejaculations. Huh. Did you know <laughs> bonobos exchange sex as like a power thing? Like bonobos just like exchange sex as a thing to exchange. Like as a currency? Kind of, yeah. Oh, so do people, kind of, sometimes. Kind of, yeah. Whoa. Here's your sex, give me my money. <laughs> Here's your money, give me my sex. Which is how some marriages work. Uh, yeah, <laughs> that is. That is how some relationships work. Sorry, that got real sad real quick. Well, is it sad if all parties are in agreement? I don't know. Oh, that's true. Yeah. That's really not. Anyway, um, he this, this Christopher Ryan guy, he quoted... Uh, E.O. Wilson, I believe the E stands for Edward, um, who states, uh, all we can surmise of a humankind's genetic history argues for a more liberal sexual morality in which sexual practices are to be regarded first as bonding devices and only second as a means of procreation. Um, So like our evolved sexuality is in direct conflict with many realities of our modern world yeah and what we feel and what we're told we should feel are always in conflict which causes a lot of unnecessary suffering um and then to finish up with this ev psych section uh i want to close it with what he said at the end of the ted talk because it was just really inspiring and great as ted talks are supposed to be um he says my hope is that a more accurate, updated understanding of human sexuality will lead us to have greater tolerance for ourselves, for each other, greater respect for unconventional relationship situations like same-sex marriage or polyamorous unions, and that will finally put to rest the idea that men have some innate instinctive right to monitor and control women's sexual behavior crowd erupts and in applause. Um, And then he goes on to say that (laughs) our fight is not with each other, Our fight is with an outdated Victorian sense of human sexuality that conflates desire with property rights, generates shame and confusion in a place of in place of understanding and empathy. It's time we move beyond Mars and Venus, because the truth is that men are from Africa and women are from Africa. Oh, I know. I was like, I fucking love Ted. (laughs) Um, You said E.O. Wilson. Yeah. Is it O.E.? 
W-E-N, Wilson? <laughs> no. <laughs> no. Saz, <laughs> I had to. Oh, no, it's fine. Um, but now I want to talk about another TED Talk that I got super obsessed with. And then it like plummeted into a podcast that I got super obsessed with. And now I'm just fucking in love with this woman. Is um, this? Yeah. Oh, okay. What's your face? Esther Perel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, I thought you were going to say it was the Russell. Russell what? Simmons? Richard? What's his name? Oh, Richard Simmons? Richard Simmons. No, but I finished that podcast today. Because I downloaded Fucking all the good. episodes. Really, really good. <laughs> I was, I'm was. i so glad that I listened to it. I'm kind of mad at myself for not having listened to it. I, this is super sidebar, but go even if you're not interested, go listen to Missing Richard Simmons. What a great t- great time. There's like, this whole like um, conspiracy that Richard Simmons is like missing and that he's hiding and whatever. Yeah, he's like, like, like gone recluse. World, so... It's funny. Not just from the internet world. He's like literally closed himself off from like social contact from people who he had long relationships with. He no longer has those relationships with people. Okay, I'm going to listen. Yeah, it's really good. And it it shows a side of Richard Simmons that you might not ever see, even if you don't know him or like him or any of that. It's a really good podcast. It's a it's a cool investigation. It's uh, it it was a good um, good podcast and it's easy to listen to because there's only six episodes and they're only half an hour. Unlike ours, which unlike ours (laughs) encroaching on the hour mark. Yeah. Okay. so um, I want to talk now about sex and desire in long term relationships. And so for this, I am going to quote pretty much Esther Perel uh, directly and her TED talk called The Secret to Desire in a Long-Term Relationship. Um, So basically how how her quest started was that she wanted to address a lot of questions about sex and desire and relationships. Like, can we want what we already have? Why is the forbidden so attractive to us? And, And these sorts of questions. Like, basically, she set out to study the nature of erotic desire. And she has um, visited more than 20 countries as she studied this. So she's she's conducting her own meta-analysis one (laughs) might say this reminds me sorry just real quick this reminds me who is that lady that taught sex ed like on tv sex with sue yeah yeah yeah. she came to speak at my university too everybody tells me stories about where she came to their university and i'm like she did not come to my fucking school and like (laughs) i went to a decent school (laughs) yeah she was that's when you're like oh um everything i'm going to quote is esther perel and then I was like, oh, who's that lady that I got all of my sexual knowledge from? Oh, Sue. I just, like, I, I know sex with Sue, and I I think that Esther Perel is really different because it's oh, yeah. not, it's it's sex not really Sue. about sex. It's about, like, sex and relationships. relationships. Yeah, and, yeah, like, yeah. it, it, oh, she's just brilliant. No, absolutely. She just amazed me. The, um, <laughs> uh, Georgia recommended it on MFM. She's like, oh, oh yeah, I've been um, listening to... Where Should We Begin Yeah, is her podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So good. I, yeah, so, so good. Um, anyway, she says that now is the first time in human history where we are seeking sexuality in the long term, not just because we want a ton of children to like run our farm or whatever, or because it's a woman's job to bear kids or, you know, have sex with her husband or any of those sorts of things. It's the first time that we want sex over a long time period um, because it's, and it's rooted in our desire. Um, humans have 
like I mentioned at the very beginning of my of my intro, uh, humans have fundamental needs, but those needs are in conflict with each other. We need security, predictability, safety, dependability, reliability, but we also need adventure and mystery and risk and desire and the unexpected. We want surprises. We want to travel. We want journeys. Hashtag we're not sexual omnivores. Uh, yeah, but... We are. No, we're like emotional. I mean, no, we are sexual omnivores. We're not, sorry, hashtag, we're not sexual monogamists. There we go. Yeah. But we're emotional monogamists because we want emotional stability and support yeah, and security. Yeah, we do. Yeah. And we want, we want predictability in a lot of ways too. Like you want to know where shit's going. Yeah. yeah. Um, but you also want to be surprised every day. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so basically, she she asked questions like, how do we reconcile these needs in one relationship, like in a marriage? Um, it used to be a contradiction of terms that marriage was in many ways, it, for, it was for economic companionship, like we've talked about. But now we want someone who is our best friend, um, our trusted confidant, and our passionate lover all in one bundle. And we live twice as long as we used to. And um, like in love, we want to have stability. Um, in desire, we want to have the other. We want to have like the unknown. We want desire. Um, so as she was traveling the world and working through all of this and asking these questions, she began asking people everywhere that she went, when do you find yourself most drawn to your partner? And across cultures, religions, and genders, there were a few answers that kept coming up. And she grouped them into two kinds of responses. Group one would I wonder, before you tell me, I when you... Do you want to guess? Well, no, you told me like... Well, when you said, when do you find yourself most like drawn to your partner? And my instant thing was when like Calvin's being excellent at something like when he's snowboarding and like crushing it or when he's at work and crushing it. So I am hoping Your that group I fit. Two. Okay. Yeah. You fit very, very much. Um, so group one says things like I'm most drawn to my partner when she's away, when we reunite, basically like when I'm able to get in touch with my ability to imagine myself with my partner, when I can root it in absence, in longing, um, like basically distance makes the heart and the loins grow fonder. I was going to say, <laughs> I was going to make a crude vagina joke, but I'm really glad you said the loins. loins. Yeah. yeah. Well, I just thought loins was gender neutral. Um, True. <laughs> um, but group two said things like, I'm most attracted to my partner when I see him in the studio or when she's on stage or when I see them doing something that they're passionate about or when I'm at a, part, a party. And I know. Speaking my soul. I know. I Like, seriously, Margaret, I've fallen head over heels for this woman. <laughs> she's, <laughs> she's, that's what she studies. She's amazing. That's, that's her whole plan. She she's blows like, my mind. I know how love works and I'm going to make the world love me. I don't know about the world love me, but the world does love her because she's brilliant. Um, so yeah, like I, I'm attracted to my partner when I when I look at my partner and they are radiant and confident, and that's the biggest turn on across the board. Um, when my when this person, well, then Calvin should always be turned on by me because because <laughs> stuff. constant radiation of confidence. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's true. Uh, <laughs> that's true. No, I didn't mean it in a bad no, no, way. No. You, you, you. Do I'm always cocky. Yeah, not cocky, you're, but you are very confident in yourself. It's not a bad thing. Um, 
So I want to say it the way that she said it, because again, I've, I've fallen in love with her. And so everything she says and the way she says it is just any so much better than anything I could ever do. When this person who is so well known and familiar to me is suddenly for a moment, a mystery and elusive. When I get a shift in perception and can stay open to the mysteries that are living next to me. Um, she also quoted Marcel Proust, which makes me love her even more. That <laughs> mystery is not about traveling to new places, but in looking with new eyes. Oh, yeah, good. right? Like So nice. God. Um, so to, to get away from me gushing about her <laughs> for a minute, um, animals have sex, humans have an erotic life. It's sexuality transformed by the human imagination. Like that's why, that's why we have these... Um, erotic feelings that it's not just like a physical thing um she uses masturbation as an example here where she says like we can have sex for multiple hours have a great time multiple organisms and touch nobody just because we can imagine it Mm -hmm. um sex isn't just an act it's a place you go it's a language she says um it's imagination and playfulness and novelty and there is no needing or caretaking in desire like wanting is great but needing is a boner killer and those are my words, not as eloquent, right? Um, <laughs> as she traveled, she Wait, starts. So she didn't say boner killer. No, she didn't say boner <laughs> oh, killer. That's a Megan. Um, she she starts asking new questions like, "I shut myself off when," like, which is not the same question as "I get turned off when." Like, uh. I I shut myself off when. And when she started asking those questions, people would answer things like when I feel dead inside, when I don't perform well at work, when I have low self-esteem, when I feel old, basically when I don't feel that I have a right to want or to take or to receive pleasure. And so she starts asking things like I turn myself on when and important this. She said this was important because most of the time we say you turn me on or this things turn me on. And now like I'm it's out on of, you. I'm out yeah. of it. Yeah, I'm not part of it anymore. So I turn myself on when, and she found that desire comes with a host of feelings that are not always complementary of love, like naughtiness and mischief and jealousy and power. She says we get turned on at night by the same things that we fight against in the day. Um, love comes with selflessness. Desire comes with sh- selfishness. But in the best sense of selfishness, it's the ability to stay connected with yourself. And in the presence of another person, um, we have a real need for togetherness and also also for autonomy. We need the security to be able, like we need the security to be there, to be able to let go. We need the separation because if you can't let go, you can't have pleasure. You can't get excited because you spend your um your time in the body and the mind of another person and not your own. Um, A few things that she's found that a lot of erotic couples do, like people who are in long-term relationships and still have like an active erotic life together. Um, They have a lot of sexual privacy. They understand that there is a sexual space that belongs to each of them. They understand that foreplay is not something you do five minutes before you fuck. It's, it starts at the end of the previous orgasm. Um, an erotic space isn't about stroking and touching the other person. It's about when you leave your ABC corporation, when you leave such and such a product and you actually just enter that place where you stop being a good citizen who is taking care and being responsible. You leave your day person behind and you become your night person, basically. Is um, she in a relationship? 
I don't care. No, I know. I'm just, I'm <laughs> I don't just know, curious. but I don't care. And also, I just like want to imagine like her in a relationship. Like, is it just two like super French type people? Well, she's like, Belgian, are, but yeah, probably. Yeah, but don't they speak French? In- oh, yeah, she speaks yeah. French, but yeah. I think she's, um, I think of her as a multilingual. I, I know, but I just think of her as a French person because yeah. they're like very like sexual, sensual type of person. She just seems like so fucking smart to me and i think if she's in a relationship she has like this is just me imagining but i think that she would have like uh the other person would need to be like able to bring it as much as she is intellectually you know what i mean like i think that she would have i think it would be a really fun relationship because Mm -hmm. it would be so intellectually demanding i don't know just me dreaming over here about (laughs) i actually think the other way i don't think that they have to be necessarily as like intellectually on as her but like able to follow her lead or maybe make it so that she doesn't have to be the leader oh damn (laughs) actually i was watching um jane the virgin yesterday oh man yeah yeah yeah. i love that show i stopped watching that show but i really did love that show at the beginning it got a little too crazy for me but i'm a big fan of telenovelas it got crazy because it's a telenovela basically Yeah. yeah but um the most recent episode was all about like sex and sexuality and um there was one like you know petra like the super powerful whatever she's like it jane asks her about her sex life and whatever and petra's like you know what off the books i love it when i can get dominated in the bedroom because i always make decisions everywhere else like the bed is where i release and whatever so that just like links back to what you said about esther perel like maybe she needs somebody who who takes it away takes from her, control. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, maybe. Who knows? Not my business, but dare to dream. Um, <laughs> um, um, and one final thing that, that she says that um, erotic long-term couples do or understand is that they understand that passion waxes and wanes, but they know how to resurrect it and bring it back because they have demystified the myth of spontaneity great passionate sex doesn't fall from the sky when you're folding laundry committed sex is premeditated sex it's willful and intentional it's focus and it's presence i love it. i know and when you said wax seriously head over heels i'm like just in love with her amazing there was um like an anecdotal study it was a journalistic like exercise where Mm -hmm. a journalist asked i think it was like a hundred couples who have been together for over a certain amount of time like what's the thing that you would write on like that newly le- newlywed advice thing like at a wedding oh yeah like, like what's one piece of advice that you would give to newlyweds and one of them like everybody kind of said like similar things but it's all about waxing and waning and then one person just said it perfectly that love is like an ocean sometimes there are waves and sometimes the tide pulls out but it's it'll always be there as long as you believe that it will come back and so like there's waves of like love or like there's waves of lack of love but as long as you stick with it it'll come back and it's just kind of where you said love waxes and wanes same thing but thinking of love as an ocean to me just sticks with me yeah no that's great and it's making me want to put advice jars on all the tables at my wedding because I don't have anything planned for that but that's so sweet and I want people to write me anonymous love advice (laughs) yeah I feel like the weddings that I've been to where they had those I felt like kind of a phony because I'm like well I'm not married but like this is what I read online (laughs) or like this is what has kept me and Calvin together for our tumultuous 
but rewarding relationship so far. So yeah, have this advice feed each other often <laughs> i'm i'm mostly inviting like we will be the youngest sixth youngest people yeah. or like eight the youngest people <laughs> at our own wedding um and everyone like other than children that we're inviting are all like people who are in relationships who who are like relationships that will model model our own after so yeah, I should get their advice on shit. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, um, some final thoughts. Go watch anything Esther Perel has ever done or said. Um, like I mentioned for the um, Christopher Ryan's TED Talk, we'll put the links to Esther Perel's TED Talk into the description of this episode as well. Um, pardon me, just having a little trouble with my notes there. Uh, she's very intelligent. She's clearly a Proust fan, so I'm going to love it. Um, and she's a wonderful wonderful speaker. Um, she also has another TED talk on infidelity, which I chose not to discuss in this episode because it didn't quite align with what I wanted to talk about. And it would also mean that I would talk for at least another 20 minutes. Um, but, uh, she has a, another TED talk. We'll put the link for that in the episode as well. And she quotes Proust again saying, it's our imagination that is responsible for love, not the other person. And, uh, yeah, that's how I wanted to end that. Oh, that's so sweet. I love it. Um, that's yeah, what I got. I so it was of, sort of more like um, psychology of sexuality than it was psychology of sex. Although you were the ringer there with all of that information on fucking sex chemicals and shit. <laughs> that's yeah. fine. Honestly, <laughs> I like the way that this is going together because you discuss sexuality like sure in a casual relationship setting potentially, but also like in a, a lot of it yeah, yeah in long-term loving relationships well so I, I wanted like it went. to be a good um build up to your conversation about love yeah, yeah. and it definitely is so beauty well then exciting. i think listeners you better tune in next time to to hear part two of that yeah for sure um make sure to like us review subscribe that helps so so much on itunes um again just go you guys can google our uh our podcast so who knew we didn't uh and google it plus itunes so who knew we didn't itunes and it will take you to the itunes page where you can there review us you can also do it in itunes itself on your phone uh you could do it in the podcast app i heard that it's hard to find so i'm trying to instruct you guys as to where to i find don't know it. about the podcast app it's it's not as easy as i would expect it to be um yeah. within like the actual program itunes they're on making computer. sure that like you're really determined to leave that review yeah well maybe that's good <laughs> I guess. Um, yeah, so the make sure to do that if you guys are feeling ambitious and like you want to share the love. Um, also, we have all sorts of so social media. So we have, we're have we on Twitter. Who knew we didn't there? Uh, Facebook, Facebook, Instagram. We we yeah, we're all who knew we didn't everywhere. Um, and also use the hashtag WKWD when you're listening to our episodes because that would be really cool to see who's in our community. Um, yeah, that's everything. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye. Bye.